Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. Hi, welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we reclaim our authentic selves and become the parent we always wanted to be. Today, we are at episode 15, which to me is such an incredible milestone that we have gotten to 15 episodes of the podcast, largely through your support and your word of mouth and each person who finds us at the Post-Traumatic Parenting Community on Instagram where you can find us at, at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology on Instagram. We have been growing organically as one post-traumatic parent recommends the community to another and says, this is where you can get information and support. And seeing this community grow and seeing this take off and seeing how we can learn from one another has been so inspirational for me. It's one of the biggest reasons why I keep going. We discussed entanglement, and we discussed one of the five types of post-traumatic parenting, which is the entangled parent, the parent who is so tangled up in the dynamics of her family of origin. Perhaps it's the dynamics of an ex-partner. Perhaps it's an unhealthy workplace dynamic. But these parents are so tangled up in a dynamic that is interfering with them being able to parent in accordance with their values. I will say that when I think of entanglement, I picture a brightly colored clownfish entrapped in a net that's like fraying a little bit and the clownfish is just trying to swim free of the net, but the net is just dragging it back and its children are waiting on the other side and the clownfish is trying and trying and trying, but it can't quite escape the net. Remember that in the last episode, I was responding to an email from Esme, a post-traumatic parent who fits into the entangled category and really wanted her story discussed completely confidentially on the podcast. And through a series of emails, we were able to alter her story enough to hide the details. I read her story so that way nobody in her family of origin would recognize themselves. I don't think they're going to recognize themselves anyway, but nobody would ever be able to recognize who we're talking about. If you are a post-traumatic parent and you have a story, you fit into one of the profiles and you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please email me at targetedparenting at gmail.com. It's in the show notes. I will read your email. We We will make sure to disguise the details so that you can have that experience of being on the podcast without having your confidentiality compromised in any way. So remember we said that there's five categories of post-traumatic parents. The categories are perfectionist, paralyzed, entangled, survivor, and disengaged. And we spoke about the entangled parent last time, and we said we're going to do a deep dive into boundaries because we can't understand entanglement without understanding boundaries. I find that many post-traumatic parents who are entangled really don't understand boundaries because they weren't modeled for them and they weren't taught to them. So we have to understand boundaries if we're ever going to undo entanglement. And sometimes we have some misconceptions that we have to unlearn about boundaries. 
We spoke in the last episode about how Esme's family of origin have become part of her sense of self and how that entanglement is like a net. It's keeping her from swimming forward towards her values, towards parenting out of her best self. We spoke about Esme's fears that she's perpetuating this cycle onto her own kids because she finds herself saying things like, be quiet, can't you see mommy stressed out? Or she gives her oldest child caregiving responsibilities that aren't age appropriate. She only does that during crunch times in her business, and that only happens when her family of origin takes up a lot of her time, but she still feels uncomfortable about it. And I'm glad she does, because awareness of a cycle and discomfort with a cycle is the first step towards breaking that cycle, right? To be clear, I'm not saying that Esme needs to cut herself off from her family of origin, nor am I saying that she should not spend time caregiving in her family. You know why I'm not saying that? Because I'm not Esme. So I don't get a vote in what she does with her time. But then again, neither should her family. It's her very own time. And she gets to decide what she does with it. Her family could request. They can have emergencies. They can have crises. They can ask. But it's Esme who gets to decide what she's going to do with her very own time. If she's helping out with family emergencies from a sense of values, filial loyalty, a duty, a desire to be helpful, whatever, that's totally fine. But if she's helping out with the family because she wants to silence their voices of you're self-centered, you're lazy, you should, you must, you are able, so therefore you are obligated, you are lazy, you are a bad daughter, and her own sneaking suspicion that those voices are correct, that her family's criticism of her, which has become her own self-talk, that the inner critic that their voices have installed is right, and that her giving her family time is the only way to silence that inner critic, she's wrong. In that, she is factually incorrect. Sit with that for a moment. As you heard Esme's self-talk, her inner voices telling her she's lazy, she's entitled, she's spoiled, she should, she must. What emotions did that bring up for you? Where did you feel that? Can you resonate with that? What's that making you think of? What does that remind you of? So if Esme thinks that by giving her time to her family, she will silence her inner critic. She's finally going to prove to them and to herself that she's not lazy, that she's not self-centered, that she is a good person, that she's not entitled or spoiled or self-absorbed or whatever words they might use. She's wrong. She's wrong because the inner critic will never be silenced. The inner critic is like a monster that always wants more. No matter how much you feed it, it always just wants more and more and more. The inner critic will never be satisfied no matter how many proofs she gives that she's not lazy, that she's not self-centered, that she's not entitled, that she's not a bad daughter or a bad person. How do we figure this out? That's where we have to start understanding boundaries. Boundaries, simply put, are where you end and I begin. Boundaries, the real innermost boundaries, protect the self, the deepest, most authentic part of us. They keep what's most precious, authentic, and real about us intact and pure. Boundaries are a good thing. 
Let's just be very clear about that. If we didn't have the walls of our blood vessels serving as a boundary, our blood would spill all over our body and we'd die. We need the banks of a river to keep the waters confined, not to spread out and cause a flood. The way I like to explain boundaries is with a fable I wrote. I call it the fable of Mrs. McGillicuddy. Let's get ready for story time. Let's hear this story and let's see if we can understand boundaries by analyzing the story of Mrs. McGillicuddy. Once upon a time, there was a sweet old lady named Mrs. McGillicuddy. She lived all alone in a big house at the corner of a busy neighborhood. Mrs. McGillicuddy was old and lonely since her husband Bert died. She had only one bright spot in her life. She loved to grow beautiful prized tomatoes. She grew those tomatoes and displayed them at the country fair and sold them at the farmer's market. The tomatoes were the only thing standing between Mrs. McGillicuddy and total loneliness and despair. She didn't really need the money she got from selling the tomatoes, but she desperately needed the validation she got from winning the blue ribbons at the fair and the camaraderie she felt as she ran her stall at the farmer's market. Those tomatoes were more than just tomatoes to Mrs. McGillicuddy. They represented her survival. Because Mrs. McGillicuddy lived on a corner, her yard was convenient to cut through. Kids used to dash through her yard to the playground, to the bus stop, and while riding on their bikes. Young mothers would sometimes meander by her yard, standing a few abreast, and didn't always notice if they were stepping into her garden. The neighborhood cats liked to nap on the sunny patch near her front lawn. At first, Mrs. McGillicuddy didn't mind this. It made her feel a little bit more part of things as she saw the hustle and bustle of young life, heard the little kids laughing, and watched the young mothers with their children. She would smile and wave at them as they passed, and mostly, they smiled and waved back. But the neighborhood grew, and more and more people began tramping through Mrs. McGillicuddy's yard. One morning, she came outside and exclaimed in horror, One of her best, biggest tomatoes was smashed to a pulp! The tire tracks around it made the story clear. Some careless child had ridden a bicycle right through her tomato patch. Mrs. McGillicuddy shook her head as a tear escaped her eye. Silly old woman, she whispered to herself, crying over a squashed tomato. But she wasn't, really. Visions of the first-place blue ribbon she valued so much flitted through her head. The enjoyment of the crowd applauding, the satisfaction of entering the country fair. It wasn't just about... The tomato. Still, Mrs. McGillicuddy didn't give in to despair. She hung a pretty calligraphy-lettered sign on a stick next to her tomato patch. It read, Please do not step on the tomatoes. On the wall of her house, she wrote a letter. Dear neighbors, I'm happy that the shortcut through my yard is so convenient for you. I enjoy seeing all your cute kids dash through my yard on their way to play. But my tomatoes are precious to me. Please be careful not to trample them. Sincerely, Elvira McGillicuddy. Satisfied, she went off to bed. But a few days later, some children were playing war, and they dashed right through her tomato patch. This time, a few plants were destroyed. She was devastated. Surely her sign was enough. Surely the parents would have read it and would have cautioned their children to respect her treasured tomatoes. So Mrs. McGillicuddy put a string around her tomato patch. That didn't work very well. Stroller wheels and bicycles just rode right on through it. Next, she tried a pretty picket fence. It matched the decor of her garden and the other houses on the block. But a few days later, she came outside for her daily weeding to find a little boy 
calmly munching on her second-place tomato. Surely his mother had read the sign and seen the fence and would have realized how important the tomatoes were to Mrs. McGillicuddy. But when Mrs. McGillicuddy told the young mother what had just happened, she shrugged. She didn't seem to realize the gravity of what had happened. That hurt almost as much as the loss of her second-best tomato. So Mrs. McGillicuddy put up a chain-link fence higher than her head. Now the off-limits tomato patch seemed to become some sort of a challenge for the neighbors. They'd climb the fence or hop it. The tomatoes got smashed to a pulp. When some people see a chain-link fence, it almost becomes a challenge. They just have to try to beat it. Finally, Mrs. McGillicuddy had had enough. So she erected a giant brick wall, taller than her house. It was impermeable. If that wasn't enough, she installed a motion sensor alarm that barked like the loudest attack dog when anyone ventured too near her house. As much as she missed the cute children and seeing the mothers with their strollers, she valued her tomatoes more. They were her survival, and she just couldn't risk them. The neighbors did not take this lying down. They felt entitled to their shortcut. They felt angry that it was taken away from them. After all, they had gotten used to using the yard. It felt like it was theirs. How dare Mrs. McGullicuddy deprive them of their yard? For years, everything was fine, they proclaimed. Then suddenly, she reads some article on fences and decides she needs one. Some of the neighbors got angry with the fencing company. They were sure some unscrupulous salesman had convinced Mrs. McGillicuddy that she needed a fence simply because they wanted to make a buck or two. They took Mrs. McGillicuddy to court, at least the court of public opinion. Everyone agreed that she was acting wrongly. One day, she just suddenly puts up this giant fence, interfering with the shortcut they were used to, creating an eyesore and making life uncomfortable for them. They didn't know why she started this fight, but they were not going to take it lying down. What gives her the right to hold a grudge against us, they said. She started it. Poor Mrs. McGillicuddy. What the neighbors don't realize is she's not holding a grudge. She's holding a boundary. There's a difference. I've heard from so many people that mental health professionals, whatever that umbrella term means, teach people about boundaries because our profession is somehow interested in estranging family members from each other. I'll hear a variation of, she was totally fine. Everything was great. Then one day, she gets it in her head to go to therapy out of the clear blue sky. Next thing you know, she's into this boundaries thing and she cut off from her family. That's what these therapists do. They want to estrange people from each other. Chances are, in 99% of the cases, there's a lot of squashed tomatoes and ignored fences in the backstory of this situation. Boundaries are not the same thing as estrangement. In fact, boundaries are what prevent estrangement. Ignoring boundaries is what creates estrangement. Think of Mrs. McGillicuddy. If her neighbors had respected her polite note and perhaps occasionally expressed appreciation for the use of her yard as a shortcut, there wouldn't be a fence up there today. Soon we're going to talk about ghosting and how ghosting works when it comes to estrangement because ghosting is sort of like passive estrangement. So far we've said that boundaries are where you end and I begin. If you think of Mrs. McGillicuddy, boundaries are where the common ground of the neighborhood ends and Mrs. McGillicuddy's tomato patch begins, right? Boundaries are about mediating closeness, not distance, right? 
it used to be comfortable for Mrs. McGillicuddy to have her neighbors come pretty close to her tomato patch. She used to allow them to cut through her yard. It was okay for them to step on her grass because that's how close it felt comfortable. But once they were squashing her tomatoes, that was too close. How close is too close? Does closeness sometimes become impingement? Does closeness sometimes become squashed tomatoes? What's the ideal distance? What's the ideal closeness? We all will have a slightly different sense of that. We all will have a slightly different threshold. We know that boundaries are kind of tough to navigate in relationships because, like, how close is too is comfortable? How close is too close? How close is, like, a cozy, comfortable, delicious feeling? We're all going to have a different threshold for that. The trick is to respect boundaries when we notice them. Believe people when they say, that's a little close for me. I love it when you visit, but please call first. You're welcome to borrow an ingredient, but you got to knock on my door before you enter my house. I'm happy to show you my new code or my new car, but I prefer not to tell you what it costs. Even if we have different boundaries, even if I'm okay with you looking at the price tag on my new coat, I have to respect your desire not to let me look at yours. In general, whatever that umbrella term of mental health professionals means, I will tell you that mental health professionals, or at least psychologists, because I can only speak to my own licensure, we kind of dislike estrangement. It means a relationship isn't healthy, and we're all about making relationships healthier. In general, no one responsible suggests simply cutting off from people. That's generally a last resort, and that's usually done in collaboration with a team of experts. It's discussed, it's debated, it's thought deeply through. The risk of maintaining the relationship has to be vastly higher than the risk of cutting it off. And that usually happens with a lot of warning, a lot of notices and string fences and picket fences and chain link fences. It happens after there are a lot of tears and a lot of squashed tomatoes. And it usually happens because there's no other way the tomatoes inside the garden can thrive. If you want to prevent estrangement, I have news for you. Me too. Let's start by respecting boundaries. Let's go back to Esme's story and interpret it in light of our new understanding of boundaries. In the fable, Mrs. McGillicuddy had a prized tomato patch that she valued highly. Her neighbors used her yard as a shortcut and became accustomed to using it. It stopped being Mrs. McGillicuddy's yard, and it simply became the yard or the shortcut. Human nature is, once we get used to using something, it's hard to remember that it's not actually our right. Do you see how Esme's time has become the family's time? To review, Esme has a dad who is chronically ill. Her mom is a closet alcoholic. There are other siblings in the family who are very preoccupied with their own lives and their own needs, like there's a sister who's involved in a bitter custody dispute. There's a brother who's in college. So Esme's time, just simply by default, has become the family's time. Dad has a paper that needs to be filed by close of business today. That becomes Esme's headache and emergency, even if he knew about that paper for six months and only told Esme about it this morning. Dad has a doctor appointment. Mom needs to be driven somewhere. It all falls on Esme. Esme's time simply became the family's time. Not just to the family, because like I said, there are a lot of resources out there about overly entangled families like Esme's. But to Esme herself, she doesn't truly view her time as her own. This is where Esme's anger comes in. Anger does two things. It identifies a problem and it identifies a boundary. 
When we're feeling angry, especially when it's disproportionate anger, especially when it's an anger that starts with words like you always or you never, we're likely talking about a boundary impingement. Esme needs her anger because her anger is going to help her clarify her values. After all, we only get angry when something precious is threatened, right? I'm not going to be angry if someone threw out like my old wrapper from lunch, but I'm going to be pretty angry if I wrote on a piece of paper, important, do not discard, and then someone threw it out, right? Because it's important. And of course, underneath Esme's anger is deep sadness. Anger isn't a primary emotion. It covers up another emotion. I often say, and this is not mine alone, a lot of people say this, grief by another name is called anger. There's a deep sense of sadness in Esme. Sadness that she's only valued by her family for what she can do for them and not for Esme herself as a person. Sadness that she's losing time and ground with her kids while being trapped in those entanglements. Sadness for her own inner child who wasn't parented the way Esme is trying to parent her own kids. The problem is anger can be a distraction. It can be so beneficial because it gives us a really important message but it can be a distraction, especially when we feel guilt around our anger. Because I'm projecting here, if Esme communicates her anger and frustration towards her family, she's going to end up lashing out, and that will become the next transgression, so to speak, in her family's terms, that she has to make up for. Like, how dare you yell at dad, or, you know, he's so sick, right? Something like that. So anger, while valuable, is very dangerous territory. When I asked Esme what happened when she spoke about boundaries with her family of origin, this is what she told me. My mother says that this new nonsense about boundaries is ridiculous. People nowadays act selfishly and call that boundaries. Here's the thing. I say this about entangled families. I say this about any family of origin dynamic that's difficult. When you have that inner critic, you have that inner voice, which is really those shaming voices from your childhood. Mostly they're lies, but the best lies in the world carry an element of truth to them. What Esme's mother is saying about boundaries is not entirely false, and that's why it's so insidious. Boundaries are so confusing for us, and they can sometimes be confused with other things, like preferences. I've heard people misuse the term boundary when they really mean preference or comfort zone. And I think Esme has probably heard these things too. Sometimes she's heard people justify an action that was more about a preference or more about a comfort zone than it was about a boundary. And maybe she thought, well, I don't know if that person, I don't know if that's really a boundary. I'm not sure about that. And then she got confused about boundaries because we all do when we're learning them, especially when they weren't taught to us clearly in childhood. So this is what I mean when I say preferences and comfort zone. My mother-in-law wants to come and visit my baby again. Hello, boundaries. Extending an invitation or asking to visit isn't a breach of boundaries. A preference not to have the grandparents over or to go and visit, it's a preference. The request in and of itself is not a violation of boundaries. The request is just what I call a bid, and I'm going to talk about bids in a minute, right? It's like a bid for your attention. It's a bid for your time. It's a bid for, you know, you coming over or them being allowed to come over. Maybe grandma can be a tad annoying to have around, but it's also true that she lavishes a lot of love on the baby and we know she's lonely and we're stretching ourselves a bit to have her over. Or we say, it's really not a good time for us. It won't work for me this week. The invitation itself is neutral. A boss saying, can you stay late today? I'll pay you time and a half. That's not a boundary violation. In and of itself, that's simply a request. 
Recently, I got a phone call from a doctor's office. I was supposed to have an appointment on a particular day, and they called me and they said, it's really your appointment, but you know, if it's okay with you, we'd like to bump your appointment for another month. Someone else has major scheduling conflicts, and she can't really do it at any other time, and she needs this procedure. Can you trade appointments with her? In and of itself, that's not a boundary violation. It's a request. I have the right to say yes. I have the right to say no. It's simply a bid. The invitation itself is neutral. Any request really is. It only becomes a matter of indignation when we feel uncomfortable saying no. If my boss is asking me to stay late, it's a request. The emotional valence I give it comes from me. Obviously, if it's not a request, it's an order. It's like, could you please stay late? But it means you are going to be staying late. Whole different conversation. That is a boundary violation. Grandma informing me that she will be in my house at four, whether I say yes or no, that's not a request. That's an order, perhaps couched in request language. That's different. Can you see the difference? And I'm aware I'm being a little repetitive here, but it's because it's very nuanced and hard to understand. Anyone can request, and we get to say yes or no. The request itself is neutral. These are bids. It's a bid for your time. It's a bid for your attention. It's a bid for, you know, like I said with the doctor's office, it's a bid for your time slot. Bids are usually neutral unless they're coupled with orders or guilting or unless they're coupled with our own internal bids. If I say no, she'll judge me. If I say no, I'll judge me because I should be nicer. I should make time for her. I should take responsibility for her emotions. I know she's lonely. Those are also bids. They're bids from our wounded inner child. That's so different from saying something like, I'm not responsible for her emotions, but I value kindness. Great Aunt Bertha can be tedious, but I know she'll get a lot of joy out of visiting my baby, so I'll say yes. Right? I'm not responsible. I'm not saying yes because my inner child is going to judge me harshly for saying no. How dare I not be so kind, right? Or even it's not kind, it's really nice, right? If I'm angry at Great Aunt Bertha because she's guilting me or informing me she's coming, sure, that's a good use of anger. That's anger giving me a message. Doesn't mean I'm going to lash out. Doesn't mean I'm going to automatically say no. But my anger is telling me the truth that there's a boundary violation here. So the request in and of itself is neutral. My inner child creating bids, telling me I must people please, telling me I must say yes, that's a problem. Someone couching a order as if it's a request, that's a problem. But those are not the same thing. Great and Bertha asking and really just asking, hi, can I come over? I really want to see your baby. She's so cute. That's neutral. If I get mad at Great Aunt Bertha, I'm displacing the anger that I should be feeling towards my wounded inner child in an effort to shore up boundaries and help my inner child learn. doesn't mean I have to lash out at my inner child or punish my inner child or shame or blame my inner child, but it's like, wait, who am I really angry at right now? So if I'm angry because my wounded inner child is the one providing the bids, I should say yes. I can't say no. I'm a bad person if I say no. Someone else will judge me if I say no. The anger at grandma or great aunt Bertha or mother-in-law or boss is misplaced. If, of course, they're simply requesting, they're making a bid in a neutral manner. So is my anger at my parenting partner for having such an annoying grandmother, right? I had a consultation with a school and I was talking about a supervisor-supervisee dynamic. And the supervisee was telling me, she's such a pushy boss. She asks me to do overtime. And yeah, she offers to pay for it, but still she asks. 
And I asked the supervisee, so what, what happens when you say no? And she looked at me so blankly. The boss may or may not be pushy. She may be a pushy supervisor. She may not be a pushy supervisor. But if the employee isn't saying no and then seeing what happens next, she doesn't know that. Saying no and putting up with that judgment, perhaps, or some sort of retaliation, yes, that's uncomfortable, but that's data. So some of that is our internal bids, our own fears and projections about saying no and what that will mean. That's the tricky thing about anger. It exists to help us assert our boundaries and solve problems. If Mrs. McGillicuddy hadn't gotten angry about the injustice of her ruined tomatoes, she wouldn't have been able to muster up the energy to call the fencing company. She would have been too sad. She would have been mourning the loss of her prized tomatoes. And as common with sadness, it would have focused her attention on all the other losses in her life. She would have been too busy crying over the loss of her husband, her general loneliness, to really focus on solving the problem. Sadness generally demotivates us. It removes our energy. It's anger that gives us the energy boost that allows us to take decisive action. And that's why sadness and anger can be flip sides of one another. We need the anger to give us the energy to solve the problem. We need the sadness to help us define what's precious, what needs to be protected. The problem is anger is also the ultimate permission giver. When we get angry about something, we allow ourselves leeway to act in ways that don't really reflect our values. And that's what's so tempting about anger, right? Getting angry over a mother-in-law's lack of boundaries is a good way to avoid the more perplexing question. Am I allowed to say no sometimes? Am I allowed to have a preference? Will I feel guilty for not inviting her over or going to visit her? And sometimes the answer is, yeah, I'm allowed to have a preference. It's okay to sometimes say no. And sometimes the answer is, yeah. I will feel guilty because I feel like I value saying yes right now. My value of being kind and extending my support to someone who's lonely is more important in this situation than my preference. So sometimes I'm going to act in accordance with my values and not my comfort zone and go. And sometimes I think "Mm, this is not the moment to get out of my comfort zone. Right now I need to stay in my comfort zone. So the word boundaries is a little bit of a distraction in this situation because the bid is neutral. Of course, if grandma or mother-in-law is refusing to take no for an answer, emotionally blackmailing, inserting themselves into areas of parenting where they don't belong, that's a whole different issue. That's a boundary issue. But the simple invitation in and of itself, even if it makes us feel discomfort because we have to wrestle with that question, that isn't. That's just a bid. It's just neutral. We have to be very careful with anger. Because used well, it's protective. Used wrongly, it's destructive. And it also, it tends to cement those uncomfortable dynamics, right? Esme lashing out at her family is going to end with Esme feeling a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of self-doubt and a lot of doing extra and being extra involved in the family to make up for it, to prove to herself and the family again that she's a good person. And that dynamic just gets reinforced, right? We say in the concept of neuroplasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together. If lashing out then leads to more entanglement, then that cycle is going to perpetuate and perpetuate and perpetuate. The other confusing thing about anger is that it's sometimes used as an antidote to guilt. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that unlike many mental health professionals, not always against guilt. I see justified guilt as a pro-social emotion. It exists to tell us we messed up, that we hurt someone, that we have something we need to fix. That's all it tells us. 
it's not supposed to say things like you are a globally bad person beyond repair. It's supposed to say, you shouldn't have said that to her. Call her and apologize. And very often when we feel a justified sense of guilt, you know, we lash out at a kid and then it's like, oh, gosh, I should have been a little bit more patient. I shouldn't have spoken to her that way. And then we go and we engage in that rupture and repair process before my emotions got too big and I yelled at you and I shouldn't have. I saw that that scared you and I'm sorry. The relationship gets stronger, right? That's where we can have our deepest and most meaningful conversations with our kids, with our friends, with a parenting partner, with a spouse, with a coworker, right? Those are the times that we can really deepen a relationship when we feel guilt and we say, yeah, I should fix that. We don't like feeling guilt. We take steps to avoid it. One way of getting rid of guilt, the pro-social way, is to fix the thing we've broken. I yelled at my kids. I'm going to apologize. I didn't visit grandma or call great aunt Bertha enough. I'm going to pick up my phone. I've been neglecting a relationship. Let me call that person and fix it. I've been spending a little bit more time than I should on funny cat videos. Okay, I'm going to set a timer. And then I'm going to shut my phone during parenting so as not to be tempted. Right? I fixed it. The other dangerous and insidious way of dealing with guilt is by magnifying anger. When we're angry, we don't feel guilt. That's what I mean when I say anger is the ultimate permission giver. When we're mad, we give ourselves permission to say and do things that would be unthinkable in a calm state. That's why it's more comfortable to be angry at grandma's lack of boundaries than it is to think about whether or not her statement is in any way justified. Grandma saying, I'm lonely, I'd like to see your baby more, isn't in and of itself the problem. Feeling guilty about saying no, that's the problem, because you have every right to say no, it's your time. Saying yes when we really mean no, because it's not workable right now, is also a problem. But grandma herself isn't the problem necessarily. We have a rule in my parenting classes, people can't be problems, because people can't be solved. People can't be solved, their behavior can be solved. And maybe with that grandma problem of, you know, she is very lonely and I do visit her. Maybe it's let's resource with the rest of the family and see who else can visit her. Maybe that's about finding other people. Perhaps there are volunteers in the neighborhood or things like that, right? Sometimes it's about resourcing and making that bigger. So let's remember what boundaries are. They exist to protect relationships. They exist to say this is the level of closeness that's comfortable, healthy, and feels right. They don't exist to keep us in comfort zones. They're not in and of themselves aggressive in any way. Anyone who's telling you that establishing a boundary is an aggressive act does not understand boundaries. When we're thinking about the people we get angriest at, that coworker, that neighbor, that in-law relation, that sibling, we all know that person, let's first analyze where the different understanding of boundaries is causing the anger. 90% of the time, it's because we have different ideas about boundaries. Once we've done that, delineated what our boundaries are, we have the option, if we want, we don't have to, but we have the option of running those boundaries by someone wiser than us than we trust. Remember, there's no objective standard for boundaries. One family might be comfortable with grandma and grandpa coming over with no advance call, rummaging through their fridge, making dinner for their kids. Another family might need a call way in advance or doesn't allow anyone into their kitchen. One family might have a routine grandparent sleepover and the other family drops into family parties for an hour or so. It's not that one person is correct and one person is too much of a pushover and one person is way too uptight. It's that these are my boundaries and they make sense to me and I vetted them with other wiser people and I'm comfortable with them. Most crucially, 
If I ignore them, I'll end up either distancing myself from that person or I'll blow up at them. So I'll respect them to begin with. I was once visiting a friend who lived in a faraway state and I drove over and I was spending the afternoon with her in her house. And all of a sudden she and I were talking and a neighbor of hers like just walked in and like went into her kitchen. I don't think she even said hello and just was like rummaging around in her kitchen. And then she left. And I said, oh, who was that? And she said, oh, yeah, that's my neighbor. She just probably needed some, I don't know, whatever, something, a cup of sugar. And I remember looking at her like, you're okay with your neighbor just like opening your front door without knocking, walking into your house, taking some sugar and walking out. And she's like, yeah, that's the kind of friendship she and I have. It's totally fine. That would not be totally fine for me. But those are her boundaries. And these are my boundaries. And it's totally fine for her to have one set. As long as she's okay with them, it's totally fine for her to have those boundaries. And it's totally fine for me to be like, yeah, I don't know that as much as I like my neighbors. I don't know that I necessarily want someone just walking into my home without knocking first. I have this phrase. This is what works in our family. And I've heard from so many people that it's a lifesaver. So like when there is, you know, a family, you know, party or something and one family is like coming the morning before and sleeping over and staying like for days on end and the other family drops in for an hour and we have grandma saying like, your sister comes for so long and you only come for an hour. This is what works for my family. In so many situations, it works so well because it's that's what works for me. This is what I can do. Once we have our boundaries figured out for ourselves, we can set up times where there's an exception. Normally, I'd like notice about your kids sleeping over. But of course, if you went into labor unexpectedly, send your kids right over. We can also set up people who are exceptions. Normally, I don't like answering questions about where I buy my kids clothes, but Great Aunt Bertha's lonely and very curious about these things. I'm okay with stretching myself. Normally, I'm not great about sharing kitchen equipment. I like my things kept clean and just so I don't want anything broken. But my sister-in-law is just as careful and conscientious as me. So it's totally fine for her to borrow those things. After that, we have the right to kindly and gently communicate those boundaries to people around us. If we've vetted our boundaries with someone wiser than us, no one gets to tell us that we can't have them. I have a friend who has a rule that, you know, there are no play dates after a certain time in the evening. That's what works for her family. I have people who have rules about what people can and cannot borrow in their home, right? And again, that's what works for their family. I have friends who are comfortable discussing the details of their salary and benefit. And I have friends who just would never have a conversation about that. That's what works. That's their boundary. If we think about any of the ongoing chronic and frustrating family conflicts that blow up, at their core, often there's a boundary violation due to having different ones. When we're clear about what the boundaries are, when we're clear about our need to gently communicate them to other people, and that they're not necessarily up for negotiation, a lot of conflict can not only be avoided, but handled productively. And that ends up making for closer and more harmonious relationships. A woman emailed me and said, you know, I've been listening to some of your Instagram lives and, you know, I've been hearing you speak about boundaries and I kind of love it. I had to establish boundaries with my family, and one of my aunts warned me, that means my kids will create boundaries against me. I know boundaries are important. My family wasn't understanding of things like private information, so to say private, or that you need a knock before you show up at your sister-in-law or niece's house, and it wasn't working for my marriage. Still, that warning that my kids will grow up to set boundaries against me, that really scared me. What struck me in her statement were the words, my kids will create boundaries against me. 
Boundaries are never supposed to be antagonistic. In relationships, boundaries should be collaborative. Our kids won't set boundaries against us. Our kids will set boundaries with us. Think about it. If you call your friend or your adult child or a neighbor, do you want them to grit their teeth and remain on the phone chatting with you? Or do you want them to feel free to say, now isn't a great time. Can I call you back tomorrow after my kids go to school? Which one leads to a better relationship? I sincerely hope my adult children will set boundaries with me because then we can have an honest and trusting relationship. We want our kids to have good boundaries because we want them to have a strong sense of self. If you think about it, from the moment they're born, children are moving away from us, first physically as they're brought into this world, then they start to wriggle and then crawl and then walk and then run. They go to playgroup and then elementary school, then high school. We want that, right? We want them to be free to grow, explore, and find their place in the world. We also want to be that secure base that they return to. This dance of connection and separation is part of what we call attachment. It would be tragic if they wouldn't separate themselves from us and become their own people. I have a friend who is raising a special needs adult. Her child experienced a traumatic brain injury in childhood, and this child will never be fully independent. She once told me, I have my forever baby. I don't think anyone's envious of her. I mean, I'm envious of her parenting skills, and she has incredible fortitude, and she's an incredible person. But the forever baby is not what she dreamed of when this baby was born. The forever baby isn't what she was hoping for for this child until that tragic accident. Boundaries are born as the child realizes, here is where I end, here is where mommy begins. That extends to other people. Here is where I end, here is where my friend begins. I can feel incredibly close to my friend, but there are aspects of her experience that I just don't share. I can love my teacher. I can think she's amazing, but it doesn't mean she's my mother. I can respect my professor, but I don't live in his house. Boundaries are part of having a strong sense of self. This is who I am. This is how I was raised. This is what I value. This is what I care about. Having a strong sense of self is incredibly protective. It's also what can keep kids safe. It's people with poor boundaries that can be tempted or pressured or peer pressured or sidetracked into doing things that aren't consistent with their values. Poor boundaries are what lead us to ignore that little uh uh-oh voice in our stomach, as Gavin D. Becker puts it, that keeps us safe. Think of the following scene. Eric goes to his friend Mark's house for the day. It's vacation and his mother is working. So Mark's mother said that Eric can come over. Mark whispers to Eric that he can get onto a really disturbing YouTube channel and watch something really incredibly X-rated and violent that both moms would not allow if they knew. Eric wants to say no. He knows he's going to have nightmares. Deep down in his stomach, he knows it's wrong. When he tells Mark, I don't know, we're going to get caught. We'll get in trouble. Let's play Minecraft instead. Mark says, what are you, a scaredy cat? I can't be friends with a scaredy cat. We can substitute anything from alcohol to drugs to cyberbullying in this anecdote, whatever would scare us most if it was our own nine-year-old son or daughter. What's going to be the end of that story? If Eric has good boundaries and a good relationship with his parents and a strong sense of self, he'll find the strength to say, I'm different from Mark. I'm a good person who deserves friends. If he stops being friends with me, someone else will want to be friends with me. Good boundaries make for a strong sense of self and a strong sense of values. We want our children to have a strong sense of self, to know what they value 
and to know that what might be good in another context isn't consistent in their own values, to see us authentically acting on our values, to develop their own values. Those, we hope that they'll be somewhat consistent with ours and those that are unique to their own lives and their own situations and the lives they end up living and their kind of unique selves as they grow. Boundaries are not about being selfish and intolerant of discomfort. Too often, I've seen the two confused. Boundaries are only about having values and acting in accordance with them, even when other people don't see it. There's nothing wrong with sometimes controlling ourselves or acting against our preferences. The thing is, a preference isn't a value. I prefer to spend time at home this weekend, but my neighbor's daughter is getting married, and I value our relationship, so I'm going to go, even though I'm really not in the mood. The key difference here is preference. It's not a preference. If it's like, I can't go to this wedding. My baby was up all night and my eyes are closing on me. I have a pounding headache and going to this wedding means I'll be tense and yelling at my kids all week. Then that's not a preference. That's a value. And values become time and action. I love my neighbor. I truly want to be there with her. I truly want to be there for her. But it's a conflict with a stronger value. So therefore, that makes it more clear. I need to protect my relationship with my kids and my health more than I need to go to this wedding. When our children see us establishing boundaries, especially boundaries that protect and nurture them, that helps them develop this sense of self. When dad or mom says, you know, I have this work that I could be doing, I could be working on this business deal, I could be finishing this email to my boss, but it's the hour I help my kid with my homework, his homework, and I put my phone on silent, that's boundary. That boundary automatically communicates what dad or mom values And being valued makes his son have a strong sense of self. Being valued makes our daughters have a strong sense of self. I know who I am. I am the person that is worth focusing on. Seeing dad have those boundaries means I should have them too. And maybe that means I say no to Mark, right? Or if I don't, I talk to dad about it and figure out what to do next time. When mom says, my kid is being so cute, I'm going to post it on social media and asks for consent, which I think all parents should, and the kid says, no, no, don't post that picture of me, and mom respects that, it's showing deep respect for boundaries, which is deep respect for autonomy and our essential humanity. And maybe that lets that kid have such a strong sense of self that they can then say no to peer pressure and act in accordance with their values. That's the kid who doesn't join other kids when they're bullying and they're an upstander instead of a bystander because they have such a strong sense of self. Having good boundaries is what allows a child to make that crucial distinction between I did something wrong and I am bad. If a child feels I am bad, he's not going to admit that to his parents. That's the last thing he wants to do. But if a child messes up and his sense is, I did something bad, I need help repairing it, he'll go to his parents for help. That's what can prevent that tiny slip of a mistake from turning into a slide down a slippery slope, right? I watched that video with Mark and now kind of intrigued. Maybe I want to watch another one of those videos. The next thing we know, we have this full-blown porn addiction. More and more, we live in a world that doesn't really respect boundaries. That's why it's up to us to set them, reinforce them, and respect them. When our children see us doing that, they learn that it's possible. The fact that we protect our relationship with them by setting boundaries means they're valuable people, people who have a strong sense who they are, right? They are valued and valuable. Without those boundaries, this world can be a very dangerous place. 
when you know who you are, you know who you're not. And that's the essence of safety. In answer to the woman who doesn't want her children to develop boundaries against her, I don't want that either. I hope her children will develop boundaries with her. And together, they'll develop boundaries that create a meaningful, deep, and sustainable relationship. If we think about boundaries, and I think for Esme, this is key. Very often, our kids are the motivators out of these unboundaried relationship. And it's a good step, but it's just a step. It's not, I need to protect my time so I can be the kind of parent I value. That's great. That's fabulous. But do you see how it's not enough? So I love when I hear, I need to protect my time because then I can be the kind of parent I value. I need to respect my own boundaries because then I can parent in the way that I value. It's great. But do you hear why it's not enough? Continuing to heal would be, I deserve to protect my time because it's my time. I get to decide how to use it. It's the same with any boundary, material boundaries, body boundaries, time boundaries, information boundaries, emotional boundaries, intellectual boundaries. There's a lot of different boundaries, and I think maybe we should go through what they are just to make them clear. Examples might be, this is my home. I get to decide with who and how I share that space. This is my bike, my car, my book. I own it. I get to decide who can and can't use it. This is my body. I get to decide who touches it, when and how. Time boundaries. This is my time. I get to decide how to use it. This is my lunch hour. This is my free time. This is my work time. Information boundaries. These are my opinions, my thoughts. I get to decide when and if I'll share them. I get to decide when and if I'll debate them, discuss them. These are my private details. I get to decide if I'm going to share them with you, if I'm going to discuss them with you, or if I'm going to say that's not something I'm going to discuss. Emotional boundaries. This is my emotional bandwidth. This is how much of it I can share. This is how much of it I can't share. I'm not going to share. When we respect someone's boundaries, we're honoring them as essentially human. When we ignore boundaries, what we're doing is we're not seeing them as humans. We're seeing them as objects. In the way we might say object when we say object relations, meaning the object of my attention, the object of my affection, that person is the cookie giver. That's all they are. They are the person who will give me a cookie. That person is the person who gives me a thrill when I touch them without permission and they shrink away and that good feeling I get when I touch them anyway. That person gives me that sensation. That person is the person whose time I can use as my resource. That person is the person I can vent to whenever I want, right? They're not a person living in their own independent reality outside of my own. They're simply the cookie giver, the person I get to touch whenever and however I want to, the person I get to vent to, right? They're a listening ear as opposed to a whole entire human besides for just that listening ear. For Esme, she's not Esme. She's not an independent individual living in her own reality who has the right to her own time and her own boundaries. She's only valued in what she can give. If there were, if you know, if she was a remote control car, that's really all they need from her. If she was a data processing app that could file those electronic applications for her father, that would be fine. They don't really need Esme. And of course, having kids complicates this and confuses us about it, especially if we're starting to learn about boundaries as we have kids, like so many post-traumatic parents. Because when we're first learning it, kids at first do see us as objects, right? Mommy is the milk giver. 
Mommy is the soothing touch provider. Mommy is the lullaby singer. Mommy is the diaper change station, right? Maybe daddy is some of those things, right? At first, that's all we are until the baby starts to individuate. Really, Esme deserves her boundaries, not only for the sake of her kids, but for the sake of herself. I love that she's doing it for the sake of her kids. I think for many of us, that's what happens. But that's not the fullest extent of healing. In families that ignore boundaries, cycle breakers like Esme become the broken objects. They're the ones that just don't function like they should. When the right button is pushed, right? If I press the guilt button and she didn't come running, what's wrong with her? If I pushed her just a tad too far and then she yelled at me and then she felt guilt and then she came and she did extra stuff for me, how come that cycle's not happening? I keep pushing the pushing her too far button and she's not responding. What's wrong with her? A broken object, right? You know, when you have a broken object like a light switch that's not turning on, what do you do? You flick, 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 flick the switch because you want to get it. You want to like wake it up and make it start working again. But Esme's like, nope. I am not, I am that broken object now. I am no longer just the one who comes running when you guilt me. The broken object means being the whole entire real authentic human. So when you're a cycle breaker, remember, you're the broken object, which means you're the authentic human. Boundaries are about clearly communicating what we will and won't do and learning to say no with clarity and intention. So let's just talk for a minute about how do we communicate our boundaries when our family hasn't heard it before, but perhaps there's not entanglement to the extent that there is an Esme's family. I remember that I promised to discuss estrangement and ghosting. So I want to discuss this here and then we'll talk about teaching families about our boundaries when they're not entangled to this extent. We hear a lot about how ghosting is passive aggressive. I kind of laugh at that because you know what's wrong? What's worse maybe than passive aggressive? Aggressive aggressive. When someone won't take no for an answer, even if it's a favor they're offering or it's, you know, that kind of visit or that kind of you must come here, you must do this and they're shoving something down our throats, they're not respecting our essential autonomy and humanity. Very often estrangement or ghosting happens after that. If you won't hear a no from my voice, you'll hear a no with my feet. Sometimes there are people, this is the only way to say no to them. So I always ask when someone says, you know, this person ghosted me, that person is estranged from me, I want to ask why they felt the need to vote with their feet and not with their voice. So just a caveat here is we're going to talk about the skill of boundaries. Boundaries and accepting boundaries is a skill. Sometimes we work up the courage to set a boundary, but it's not yet in our family's skill set, but they're not that level of entanglement like we were discussing with Esme's family. So we do have to allow for a learning curve before we just like say, okay, they're entangled, we're done. That being said, this is the first time that we feel the most intense anger Because when you finally said those words, you gave yourself permission to say those unspoken words, I finally had the courage to set a boundary and now you ignore it? I've been chomping at the bit to say these words for so many years. Now I said it and now you're still not listening to it? We feel incredibly angry. But anger, while informational, isn't always our best guide in that scenario. What we have to do, it's hard, is simply communicate the boundary again. I get that you love to see me. I need advance warning before you show up at my door. I get that you want to spend time with my kids. Coming too close to bedtime isn't going to work for our family. Wait, so you always want me to call before coming over? Yes. 
even when I just happen to be driving through your neighborhood? Yes, I need you to call first, and sometimes I may not be available. Even on Tuesdays? Yes, even on Tuesdays, right? Sometimes I'm hearing that parent struggling with the concept. I'm not necessarily hearing willful ignoring of boundaries. What I'm hearing is I don't get this. So if you keep restating it without a lot of explanations and excuses, because again, no one's the judge and jury of your boundaries, I need you to call first. Yeah, I need you to call first. Yes, even if you're in the neighborhood. Yes, even if you're around the corner. Yes, even if it's Tuesday. Yes, even if it's the weekend. We can feel anger at the need to repeat, but humans do have learning curves. When our sense of self is strong, so is our ability to be confident in asserting our boundaries, right? And that's when we can be like, yep, even on Tuesdays, yeah, that's true. Even if you happen to be in my neighborhood, yeah, even if your dentist is around my corner, yeah, still need you to call before you come over. Over and over again, because we're confident about it, because we know we have that right. So to recap, boundaries mediate closeness, not distance. Rule number one. Rule number two, there's no such thing as boundaries against. Ideally, it's boundaries with. Number three, boundaries protect what's valuable, vulnerable, and authentic, our true self, right? Those tomatoes, those squashed tomatoes in Mrs. McGillicuddy's garden. Number four, we have the right to be humans in an independent reality of our own, outside of someone else's reality, not objects for someone else's psyche. Five, anger identifies a boundary gives us the energy to reinforce it, and can also be a permission giver. So listen to anger and its information, and then make a choice based on your authentic values. Six, our kids can be the mirror, the map, and the motivation out of entanglement. When we see ourselves recapitulating the dynamics we struggled with in our family of origin, it holds up a mirror to us, reminding us that we have different values now and we have to learn different skills. They're a map to where we want to go, and they're the motivation what allows us to finally establish those boundaries. That being said, setting boundaries because I can't be the parent I want to be, the type of parent I value, while allowing you to treat me this way is a good first step. But the truth is, even not for the sake of your kids, we have the right to our boundaries. We all do. And healing from an entangled family means remembering that we always did. If you'd like your story featured on the Post Traumatic Parenting Podcast, if you have a question that you'd like me to devote an entire episode to, if you have some burning post traumatic parenting questions, please check us out and find us on Instagram. We're at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. We also have a subscription group and a Facebook group. Please find the post-traumatic parenting community. Even if you're listening to this episode on a platform that isn't Apple, please rate, share, and review this podcast. It helps new post-traumatic parents find us, and I truly appreciate that level of support. Thank you so much for listening. I truly value your time and attention today. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy. Please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did.
Wish Post Traumatic Parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? Do you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents, too. Can't wait to hear from you.